I need a reboot. No, not my laptop, my life. I'm sitting here staring at my calendar and it's packed. Three deadlines are breathing down my neck. Eight calls need to be returned. Two people are waiting outside my office for tough conversations. The school just phoned and my teenage daughter is being, well, a teenage daughter. You know, I think my parents were magicians. They both worked, but our house ran like clockwork. They seemed to have an innate sense of peace and confidence in their jobs and at home. Mom's lectures were swift and efficient, and if she needed it, she had her not-so-secret weapon. Dad, your father is going to be so disappointed in you. Disappointed. It was code for an inventive punishment that guaranteed we'd never do that again. I hated it at the time, but now I'm in awe. Well, life's different today, and I'm baffled at this parenting stuff. I wish the kids would look up from their phones for a second. I want us to connect, but... Well, like last month, we're driving Jenny to a college visit. I'm looking forward to the long trip to catch up. And it starts fine, but ten miles in, it turns into a screaming match. I'm not even sure what set her off. She's calling me words I don't even know she knows. And when the meltdown is over, we spend three hours in cold silence. I'm racking my brain, trying to come up with a good response, and, well... Let's just say she hasn't really spoken to me since. It's not much better at work. The sales team isn't pulling their weight. Ben and Claire haven't delivered their numbers in over a year. And the whole group is taking advantage of my busyness to slack. At last week's meeting, I'm going over the numbers, giving them my best General Patton speech. The end is near! I get a collective shrug, some weak commitments to do better. And then a few minutes later, I hear them all in the break room laughing and joking about who can be the first one to happy hour. I wanted to go in there, fire the lot of them, and start fresh. Start fresh? It sounds so simple. Reboot the system, wipe the slate clean, call a do-over. Yeah, a new beginning sure would be nice, but life's not like that. The Gospel According to John It's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and we learn at the end of the book that it comes from one of Jesus' closest followers called The Disciple Whom Jesus Loved. The book embodies his eyewitness testimony, and it's been brilliantly designed with a clear purpose that he states near the end. John says, The story is written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John believes that the Jesus you read about in this book is alive and real and that he can change your life forever. The book's design is really cool. Its first half opens with an introductory poem and a short story that's followed by then a big block of stories about Jesus performing miraculous signs that generate increasing controversy. And it all culminates in his greatest sign, the raising of Lazarus, which creates the greatest controversy as Israel's leaders decide to kill Jesus. And that launches into the book's second half. These chapters focus on Jesus' final night and last words to his disciples, which are followed by his arrest, trial, death, and resurrection. The book concludes with an epilogue. In this video, we're just going to focus on the first half. So the book opens with a two-part introduction. First, a poem that begins, in the beginning, was the Word. An obvious allusion to Genesis 1, when God created everything with his Word. Now, a person's words, they're distinct from that person, but they're also the embodiment of that person's mind and will. And so John says that God's Word was with God, that is, distinct. And yet the Word was God, that is, divine. 
And as we ponder this claim, we hear later in the poem that this divine word became human in Jesus. Then John goes on to draw from the stories of Exodus, saying that Jesus was God's tabernacle in our midst. The glorious divine presence that hovered over the Ark of the Covenant became a human in Jesus. Which leads to his last claim, that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Son, who has become human to reveal the Father to us. Now, as we consider these mind-bending claims, we then start to hear a story about how John the Baptist first met Jesus and then led other people to meet him and become his disciples. And one by one, as people encounter Jesus, they say out loud who they think he is. And in this one chapter, Jesus is given seven titles. Now, these titles prepare us for John's love of sevens in designing the book, but altogether they also make a claim that this fully human Jesus from Nazareth is the messianic king, he's the teacher of Israel, and he's the son of God who will die for the sins of the world. So today we're getting a brand new series called Back to the Drawing Board, and each week we're going to summarize a book of the Bible and show how it applies to a particular area of our life. So as you saw in our, our artist who began talking about how do you balance grace and truth. And the book of John is a great example of a book that is so practical in showing how to balance grace, unconditional acceptance, creating a safe environment with truth. How do you have real, honest conversations with kids, with parents, with friends, with employees, people you supervise? And the secret is, and what John's going to tell us, John was a friend of Jesus, and he's writing, he says, the thing that struck me was that the more I interacted with Jesus, it says in John 1.14, that he was full of grace and truth. No matter what he did or who he interacted with, watching him was like a case study. It was like a constant example of how to get these things right. He wasn't all grace and no truth, and he wasn't all truth and no grace. He had a perfect blend of grace and truth. You know, Google just finished a multi-year study on what makes great teams work. And they tried all kinds of different patterns. What if we put all PhDs together? And that didn't work out real well. And then they said, what if we tried this scenario? And they realized that it wasn't the particular people that mattered. They said the secret to great teams, the secret to great work, was what they called psychological safety. What does that mean? That the teams had psychological safety or a care for each other or an environment they created where people could speak truth. They could agree with each other, disagree with each other. They could say, I don't think that idea is going to be the best idea. When you create a team that had grace or psychological safety, there was more room for truth, which allowed you to get the best work out of people. And what we're going to find today in the book of John is true if you're a parent or you're a boss. People need to feel the truth of our love, that we really care about them, before they're going to love the truth we're sharing. Before they're going to love, yeah, I really want to incorporate that, yeah, I really want to listen to that, yeah, that's really important. Before they're going to love the truth you're sharing, which is important... They need to feel the truth of your love, that you really, genuinely care about them. And so to do that today, we're going to look at five principles for balancing grace and truth. And my hope is that we will be able to impact our relationships more effectively because of what the book of John shares. So what we find here is that as he's (laughs) describing Jesus, we find that principle number one here is so powerful. This idea that he was overflowing with grace and truth. And the secret to getting our relationships and leaderships right are exactly that. Can we get the mixture of truth and grace right 
in our relationships. So principle number one, John begins in chapter one and says, God had this incredible pattern of closing the gap before he got to the bottom of things. Because human beings had a lot of problems, self-centeredness, criticalness, unthankfulness, uh, harshness. And God wanted to get to the bottom of those things. But the first thing he did is that God, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. God got close. He got close to the situation. He initiated relationship first. He closed the gap before he got to the bottom. And that was the secret of this balance he had of grace and truth. Now, as a parent, as an employee, as an employer, there's a lot of times you hear about a problem and you jump in there, what's going on here? What happened in this situation? What were you thinking? There's nothing wrong with getting to the bottom and fixing stuff and addressing things. But what if instead, before we get to the bottom, what if the first thing we did is what Jesus did, what God did, what John claims that Jesus did, was he closed the gap first. He got near. He became flesh. He got near to us and said, what's going on here? Let's talk about this. Let me walk in your shoes. Let me initiate first. When somebody's confronted you, when somebody's challenged you, didn't, it, didn't you love what they were saying so much more when you felt like they cared about you? When somebody who didn't just come to bring the hammer down, though that was important, you felt like they cared and wanted the best for you. They had this ability to close the gap, to draw near before they got to the bottom. It's important to get to the bottom of things. It's important to address things and fix things and work on things. But what if they first go, we've got to close the chasm, we've got to rebuild trust. One of the first things teams need is trust. If you don't have trust to close the gap of trust, you're not going to have the psychological safety needed to address that real issue with your kids, with your spouse, or with your team as well. I've been learning how to... um, fly recently, so I took my fourth flying lesson. I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's nerve-wracking, especially on the landings. And I was listening to a guy who discussed the different teachers he's had over the years. And one of them, he's learned in military, he's learned commercial and personal. He said there's two types of teachers out there. He said there's evaluators and there's genuine teachers who are instructors. The evaluators, he said one time I was, I got into the plane we de-iced because of all the storms. We taxi out, and I'm about to take off, and apparently some ice had reaccumulated on the plane. So as I'm taking off, just a few minutes in the flight, I crashed the plane. It was a simulator, by the way. Let me mention that part of the story. And the, the instructor was an evaluator. He just said, wrong, do it again. So I started over, and oh my goodness, embarrassingly, 15 minutes later, I made the same mistake again. He says, you really screwed that up. Start over. Because that was an evaluator. He got to the bottom of the problem. Yes, I screwed up, and yeah, I made a mistake. A few weeks later, I was in the same simulator with another teacher. And this one was an instructor who was a teacher. And as we were going through the process, he's like, hey, did you try that? Hey, check on that. Hey, what? Think about this here. Be careful of that. And the heart of a teacher was so much more powerful that I wanted to hear what he said. It didn't just seem punitive. It seemed instructional in nature. That's what it means to close the gap, to get a relationally close before we get to the bottom. So I want to go back to the drawing board here and show how Jesus begins in now chapter 2 to give us the second principle for balancing grace and truth. Let's watch. 
Now that's a big claim to make about someone, and John will now go on to support it through the stories in chapters 2 through 12. They all have the same basic pattern. Jesus will perform a sign or make a claim about himself, and that will result in misunderstanding or controversy. And so in the end of each story, people are forced to make a choice about who they think Jesus is. The first section shows Jesus encountering four classic Jewish institutions. And in each case, Jesus shows that he is the reality to which that institution pointed. So Jesus is at a wedding party and the wine runs out. And Jesus then turns these huge jugs of water, like 120 gallons total, into the best wine ever. And the head waiter says to the groom, you've saved the best wine for last. Which is, of course, true. But John also calls this miracle Jesus' first sign. In other words, it's a symbol that reveals something about Jesus. So just as Isaiah said that the Messianic kingdom would be like this huge party with lots of good wine, so this first miraculous sign reveals the generosity of Jesus' kingdom. So the first principle is we close the gap before we get to the bottom. The second principle of grace is that we give our best when people expect the worst. It's actually a great explanation or definition of grace. Now, first of all, do you notice that Jesus is at a party? Maybe you don't think of Jesus, God, Jesus is a party person. You know, well, what are you guys talking about? Ah, too much fun. Talk about it. Now, Jesus doesn't go to this party to perform a miracle. It's very clear in the, in the story. He goes there to hang out with people. Jesus loved being close to people, celebrating with people, interacting with people, getting to know people. So immediately we see this idea of Jesus is in relationship at this party. And then it's a seven-day party, a big wedding feast in those days, and you, they have a catering emergency. They run out of wine. And this is incredibly embarrassing in that culture. And so Jesus' mother says, hey, you've got to fix this. And he says, well, it's not my time yet. And she says, well, whatever Jesus says, do it. His people fill up these big barrels full of water, and he tells them to scoop out some into a cup and to bring it to the head waiter. As they bring it to him, the head waiter drinks it, and it changes from water into wine. And that's miracle too. But the second miracle is right here. It says it. The, the, the head waiter says every man at the beginning of a feast sets out the good stuff. And then seven days, people have drunk a little bit. The taste buds aren't working quite as well. And that's when you give sort of the cheap beer, the cheap wine. So later, people expect the inferior, but at a time when people expected the inferior, expected the worst, you've brought the best wine. And that's what Jesus is encouraging and demonstrating. The sign of grace is that we give our best when people expect the worst. So imagine, you come across some crabby person. Your kids are having a bad day. Your parents are under stress. And you know what they deserve because you feel like giving them what they deserve. Shut up. Oh, I can't say that. Be quiet. You're in a bad mood. Come on, you're never grateful. What if in those moments you choose to give your best when people expected the worst? That's what Jesus was so good at. I heard a CPA recently talking about some of the early years of his marriage. He just really made some horrible mistakes and really hurt his wife pretty significantly in his 20s. He said, one day I was under so much stress at work, so much stress of just upgrading, 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 and, and trying to keep the pressure to keep doing that. And we weren't getting along, my wife and I, and I just decided I was done. We were living in Atlanta at the time. I just got in the car, packed up my stuff, and headed out west, out of I-20. Stopped at a hotel that night, and I thought I'd at least call her and tell her I've left. And I called. And I was just waiting for her to ream me out because I deserved it. Didn't tell her. 
totally disrespectful, but I just couldn't take any more. And I was amazed that my wife said, well, what's going on? And even the tone wasn't what I expected. So I'm just under so much stress. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of the pressure. She said, why don't you come home and let's try and figure this out together? He said, and the tone, the approach is I expected the worst. And quite frankly, I was a real a-hole, he said. I, I deserved the worst. But she gave me grace. She gave me her best. And that set the stage for how we were able to get our marriage from where it was to where it is today. Sort of a classic, well-traveled story, but it's a true story of the CEO of Tom Watson Jr., of CEO of IBM back in the 1970s. He had a young executive who made a horrible mistake, just spent way too much money, literally lost millions of dollars in 1972. Imagine the equivalent. He knew he'd screwed up. He literally put his resignation letter together. He comes into Tom Watson's office and says, listen, I know you're going to fire me. I deserve it. Totally understand. Here it is. He said, I'll never forget Tom Watson looking at me and saying, fire you. I just spent $2 million educating you on what not to do. i got to have you stay here with us to work this back. And he said he expected the worst but got more than he could ever imagine. And that dose of grace, he stayed with that team and was so motivated to do his best work for somebody who gave his best when he expected the worst. All right, now... We're going to go back to the drawing board and pick up another principle. And this third principle, I think, is so counterintuitive, it's almost shocking. Let's watch together as we move now into between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Let's watch together. Next, Jesus goes to the Jerusalem temple, the place where heaven and earth were supposed to come together, and God would meet with his people. And Jesus asserts his authority over it, running out all the money exchangers, stopping the sacrificial offerings. And when the temple leaders threaten him, he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus is claiming that his coming sacrificial death is where heaven and earth will truly meet together. His body that will be killed is the reality to which the temple building points. So Jesus comes into the temple, and when he's in the temple, he realizes that they have turned the temple into a place of really robbing people. Instead of the temple being a place where people could meet with God and pray, they had set up a monopoly whereby the Gentiles in particular would bring their sheep in, and no matter what sheep they brought in, the guard dog priest would say, not good enough. Well, you traveled for hundreds of miles, so... They would then buy your sheep for half the price, stick them in the back lot, and they'd sell you one of their sheep that did qualify for twice the price. And then for the next guy, what did they do? They took the sheep that they bought for you at half price and quadrupled it. And Jesus is so offended that people who are coming to connect with God are being abused, manipulated, that he pulls out a whip in this chapter and he begins driving out the money changers. And here again, we see Jesus getting to the bottom of the problem really, really strongly here. And the principle I want to look at is one that's counterintuitive. It's this, that we need to use bring-back anger versus pay-back anger when we're calling people to account. What's the difference? Payback anger, which you know, I often do wrong, and I do payback anger with my kids or my wife or employee, and, and that's where the expression of anger is punitive. It's putting somebody in their place. It's shame-based. It's guilt-based. It's blame-based. You want to pay them back for embarrassing you. Pay them back for, for, for inconveniencing you. Bring back anger. Still be angry. Still be loud at times even. 
But your motivation is to bring somebody back to a healthy habit, bring somebody back to common values or common mission, to bring people back to... That is not how we treat each other here. And the motivation is health. It's restorative. Yes, I'm angry because you're not doing your job and you're not going to succeed here and I want you to succeed if you don't do your job. You're not carrying your weight. You didn't carry your weight on that project. And yeah, we're angry about that because if we're going to be a team, we've got to all carry our weight. You've got to be on time. You've got to develop the skill. So Jesus says here, he pulls out a whip and he says, take these things away. This is not what this place was designed for. This was not God's intent. This is not the vision. And this is not the values we have here. Get rid of the stealing and cheating people. In fact, when I was in Israel, we actually got a, found a, an archaeological find of the, the weight system that they use. So you put the equivalent today of you know, 10 pounds of gold on and they had a weight that had 10 pounds. Well, they had drilled out the weight system to put in additional weight. So it took like 11 pounds of your gold to meet their 10 pounds. They were cheating on every level. And Jesus pulls out this whip and he says, My father's house is not a place to cheat people. It's supposed to be a place of prayer. Zeal for this. This is so important to me. I can't not speak up. So imagine Jesus with a whip. But instead of having payback anger, it's bring back. I'm trying to bring you back to the values of what this was designed for. I'm trying to bring you back to what this was supposed to be about. And I can tell the difference as a dad. When I'm using payback anger, I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you did that. You embarrass me. Versus bring back anger. I had apologized to my son just last, two days ago. I said, we had a conversation yesterday, and I felt like some of that was, I really am trying to have you learn something that you need later in life. Another part of that was me just being ticked off that you inconvenienced me. Do I need to apologize for anything? No, I think we're okay. I said, well, I'm not sure that I was right on this piece. But do you, do you hear my heart? Of why this is important. Yeah, I really do. And, and the closeness of the gap of our relationship allowed us to get to the bottom of the issue and to apologize when we end up in payback anger. I had a next-door neighbor. I used to live right up the hill here. And a next-door neighbor was not necessarily a follower of Jesus or God. Um, so he's always, we were always in great conversations. He was always <laughs> trying to push me. He'd quote Richard Dawkins and how much he liked the book, thinking I would get all ticked off. Like, oh. And I'd say, oh, I love Richard Dawkins. I've read that book. And so we built a relationship over time. And one day he was dropping his son off at Cincinnati Country Day School, which is where we used to meet before this facility. And he remembered we were meeting there as a church, and he'd heard I was a pastor there. And these are his words. He says, so I walked in, figured I got some time to kill. I walked in, I saw my neighbor Chad speaking. I didn't realize he was the head guy who spoke, the dearly beloved guy. So uh, I listened, figured, yeah, let's just see, curiosity of nothing else. And I was amazed that he talked about I remember that day. We were in a series called the Father God series, like the Godfather. And the difference between having God the Father versus the Godfather as your Heavenly Father. And I talked about how God has a payback anger. Not a payback anger, but a bringback anger. And that God's trying to bring us back to health. Bring us back to courage. Bring us back to hope. And He does get angry when we get involved in things that destroy us. But when He's angry, it's out of love because He wants to bring us back to healthy behaviors. He said, that talk was so powerful for me because I realized that was one of the things I was doing that was destroying my relationships around me. I had a lot of payback anger, not a bringback anger. He says, it's his words too, he says, I came back the next week figuring he can't have two, two good sermons in a row, maybe he just got lucky. And he kept coming for the next year and he really said, I didn't like the Jesus talk, I didn't like the God talk, but I found the principles were food for my soul. And I would just encourage you to really look at how you use your anger. Anger is appropriate. There's a proper place for anger. 
But are you using payback anger or bring back anger? Now, let's again go back to uh, the drawing board and look at another principle that comes out of the next section I think is very important in understanding how Jesus approached a man by the name of Nicodemus. Let's watch. Then Jesus has this all-night conversation with a rabbi named Nicodemus, who thinks that Jesus is just like him, another rabbi and teacher for Israel. But Jesus says that Israel needs much more than just another teacher with new information. Israel needs a new heart and a new life. Or in his words, no one can experience God's kingdom without being born again. Jesus believes that humans are caught in a web of selfishness and sin that leads to death. But he also knows that God loves this world. And so he's here to offer people a new birth, a new chance at life. So here Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Now, you don't recognize Nicodemus, but in those days, Nicodemus would be the equivalent of quoting or referencing Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. He was one of the wealthiest men, one of the most influential men, one of the most learned men in all of Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to try and speak truth into this man, this high-end leader, high, people come to me for advice. And here's what's amazing, and here's the principle. Think like a teacher, not a dictator, when calling people to account. Often, as a dad, I come across as a dictator. I'm in charge here if you're going to live under my house. And that's true. But that approach is rarely effective. Certainly in getting kids to love the principle behind what we're doing. And Jesus could have come to Nicodemus, based on John's claims, and says, I'm God, I traveled all the way from heaven here, do what I say. I'm the dictator. But Jesus takes the approach of a teacher. Even Nicodemus says, Rabbi, teacher, I know you're a teacher, I want to learn stuff from you. What are you teaching? I don't fully understand it. And Jesus, how can you not understand what I'm saying? Aren't you known as the number one teacher of Israel? He says, well, let me move from the known to the unknown. When you're born into the world, you can't give birth to yourself, right? You need the resources of a mother and father, their DNA, etc., to, to create you. In the same way, spiritually, to advance the way you want to advance, you don't have the resources you need. You need the resources from God, His compassion, His love, His courage, His strength, His patience... So in the same way you need to be born naturally with the resources from someone else, so too spiritually you need to be born with the resources of God coming into your life. You need to be born from above, is the way he says it. And Jesus, like a master teacher, goes from the known, natural birth, to the unknown, spiritual birth. That's the approach he takes to draw people in. And I just know for me, when I operate as a parent or as an employer, and I bring a teacher's mindset to the dialogue, things go so much better than when I bring the dictator mindset to the dialogue. Look at our two drawings here. And ask yourself, when you parent, when you lead, do you come across more like the teacher? And you might be the smartest person in the room, and you might even know it, and it might even be objectively true. The thing about Einstein, though, is as a teacher, though he was the smartest person in the room, he was always trying to draw people along, help them discover things they didn't yet know, to draw them into the circumstance, to, to new insights, versus the dictator. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Oh, I would never be like that. I think many times my leadership, well, I don't deserve, I don't have to put up with, I think more like a dictator, control, than I do a teacher. How do we bring people along? I was talking to a friend who got into a Bible study recently, one of his first Bible studies with a friend of mine at Horizon, and they were talking about the fruit of the Spirit. 
And he says, yeah, I'm really working on that. I want to try and be more joyful. I'm really working to be more hopeful. And my friend said, well, that's not going to work. I mean, it's not going to work. I'm going to really try hard. He said, well, Jesus talks about it a lot like a tree. You know, a pear tree doesn't have to work hard to produce pears, you know. Right? What, how does a pear tree make pears? It abides in the root. You get fruit from the roots. In the same way, he said, the Bible says it's the fruit of his spirit. The issue is your resources aren't going to handle this. You need access to his resources, which is why the most probably famous verse in the Bible is in this conversation with Nicodemus, where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's me, to come in the world so you wouldn't perish, so you could have eternal life. And eternal life is access to the eternal reservoir of what I have for you. And that day in the conversation, my friend who'd been in Bible study, you know, less than six months, and my friend who'd been in Bible study for 40 years, they didn't come at it like, I'm the expert, you're not. We're on this journey together. Doesn't it say the fruit of His Spirit? So when the fruit of God's Spirit comes out of your life, you give Him credit. Doesn't produce arrogance in you or self-righteousness in you. God, thank you for that courage. Thank you for that grace. Thank you for that patience when I wanted to get angry. That's the Spirit. In fact, they did a study that showed that the number two, two factors get kids prepared for success in life more than anything else. So as much as we spend our time on do your homework, do your homework, do your homework, what'd you get, what'd you get, what'd you get? And that's important. But the stats say that it's not nearly as important as two other factors. The number one factor that produced uh, success in life later that they found was people who do chores. Chores? All that work we're doing on ca- calculus and algebra and Chores? Because the idea of we're in this together. We need to teach how to lean on each other. How there's work to be done. You may not want to do it, but we also chip in. That actually predicted success in life. When we taught our kids, when we taught our family, what it meant to just jump in and work. And the second factor they found was unconditional love in the house. And my house is a place that I'm known, that I'm loved, that it's safe. That even when I hear truth, and I do... I know the person my parents care about me, want the best for me. And I think all too often, instead of coming at parenting or leadership like a teacher, we come at it like a dictator, and we end up getting poor results because of it. And Jesus was a master of this. Now, this next section, we're going to cover like four chapters here in one little quick video. (coughs) And this is an amazing ability Jesus had to take whatever circumstance he was in and turn it around and use different metaphors, different timing based on the different people to speak truth into a situation. Let's watch and we'll extrapolate this last principle together. From here, Jesus travels north and he ends up at a sacred well in a conversation with a Samaritan that is a non-Jewish woman. And they start talking about water, which Jesus turns into a metaphor for himself. He says he's here to bring living water that can become a source of eternal life. Now, in John, this term refers to a new quality of life, one that's infused with God's eternal love. And it's a life that can begin now and last on into the future. After this, John has designed another collection of stories that took place during four Jewish sacred days, or feasts. And again, Jesus uses the images related to the feasts to make claims about himself. So Jesus first heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, which starts a controversy with the Jewish leaders about working on the day of rest. And Jesus says it's his father who's working on the Sabbath, and so is he. And they catch his meaning, that he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God, and so they want to kill him. 
The next story takes place during Passover, the feast that retold the Exodus story with the symbolic meal of the lamb and bread and wine. And Jesus miraculously provides food for a crowd of thousands, which results in people asking him for more bread. And then Jesus goes on to claim that he is the true bread, and if they eat him, they will discover eternal life. And this offends many people who stop following him. After this is a block of stories set in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, which retold the story of Israel's wilderness wanderings as God guided them with the pillar of cloud and fire and provided them water in the desert. And Jesus gets up in the temple courts and he shouts, If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And then later he says, I am the light of the world. He's claiming to be the illuminating presence of God and the life-saving gift of God to his people. And some people believe and follow him, but others are offended and still others try to kill him for these exalted claims. The final feast story is during Hanukkah, which means rededication. It's about how Judah Maccabee cleared the temple of idols and set it apart as holy once more. And Jesus goes into the temple area and says that he is the one whom God has set apart as the Holy One, and that he is the true temple where God's presence dwells. And he also says, I and the Father are one. This makes the Jerusalem leaders so angry, they set in motion a plan to kill Jesus, and so he retreats from the city. Now this continues in the back half of John as well, but we're not going to cover that today. Jesus was a master at creating environments to get the right message to the right place. Just a master at it. And whether it's using a Sabbath to discuss the difference between rest is important, but helping people is even more important than rest. Whether it's a woman at a well. A little background on the woman at the well. The woman at the well, there's all kinds of political issues going on here. There's all kinds of racial issues going on here. There's all kinds of religious tension going on here. The Samaritans... They had a real racial problem with, with the Jews. And the Jews had a problem with the race. So Jews and, and Samaritans never interacted. And again, you see this first principle. Before Jesus addresses some problems in her life, and she's got some significant problems in her life, the first thing you see him do is close the gap. He, unlike all Jews in those days, came and built a relationship with her. He meets with her. He talks with her. She's surprised by this. She knows that Jews don't associate with Gentiles. He's creating an environment to have the conversation. Secondly, men did not associate with women in, the, in that culture in such a way. She's surprised that a man is talking to a woman. He's surprised that a, 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 a Hebrew is talking to a Samaritan. And he's surprised that a rabbi would talk to somebody with her reputation. She's out getting water in the middle of the day because she's embarrassed that she's got a reputation for, for getting around. And here, amazing again, is Jesus closing the gap. She's feeling the truth of his love. This is so countercultural, which is going to open her up to love the truth he's going to share. And it's going to be some pretty tough words that he wants to address in her life. Now, he does this several different ways. Now, in this case, notice she's pulling out some water. She says, how is it that you ask me for a drink? This is, this is not what I'm used to. And they had very different political issues. The Jews thought that you should only worship God in Jerusalem... And the Samaritans thought you should only worship God in Sychar. This would be the equivalent of a Hillary Clinton uh, lover coming and befriending a Trump lover. <gasps> this would be the equivalent of somebody who loves Trump saying, you know, it's okay that you vote for Hillary. We can still be friends. 
This is countercultural, politically, countercultural, racially. And she's so amazed by the genuine friendship offered despite differences that Jesus creates an environment to have this conversation. And he says, tell me about your husband. He says, I don't have a husband. He says, yeah. Now he gets to the bottom. I know you've had five. And honestly, you're going through men the way most people go through socks. That's my words, not his. <laughs> and, you know, like, and he, he uses this well as the, the conversation. Like, like trying to pull out water from the well to drink. The way you're being treated, the way you're allowing yourself to be treated, it's not satisfying you, is it? No, it's not. You know what? What you're really looking for is significance and love and truth about yourself. And I want you to know that I'm living water. And unlike this bucket of water that's not going to satisfy you, in the same way your relationships aren't satisfying you, if you drink what I have for you, you're going to find significance and purpose and meaning in healing the way you never have before. And Jesus master takes what, what looked like a well, and he turns into a giant sea. He creates environments to get the right message to the right place at the right time. And there's no magic to this, but... Part of the strategic leadership, you stay strategic leadership, is you don't lead all the people in your organization the same way. Some people are motivated differently. Some people need more structure. Some people need more affirmation. They both need both. But part of being a leader is creating the right environment for the right message. I mean, as a father, I'm really three fathers in one. I'm a totally different dad to my son, Quinn, who's eight, developmentally three, and has autism, than I am to my son, Javen, who's my gamer, more of an introvert. And so for him, I always have to draw him out. And because he's ADHD, I'm having to put more structure on him. Be more firm. With my daughter, Sierra, she's 20 now. She's a very tender heart. If I even raise my voice slightly, I'll break her heart. And if I talk to Sierra the way I talk to Javen, it, it would crush her. In the same way, if I, Sierra's so self-motivated that I don't put nearly as much structure on her because she has it. If I apply the same structure to her that I apply it to Javen, she'd be like, Dad, I got this. And part of being a good parent, part of being a wise leader, is really trying to create the right environment for each individual person to get the right dose of grace and truth to bring the best out of them because you want to develop them. And as John continues, he says, chapter after chapter, it's just watching a case study on leadership. Jesus does it again and again and again. It's amazing to watch. He's overflowing with grace and truth in these situations. He gets mad at the right times. He's patient at the right times. He pulls back judgment at the right times. He turns up judgment at the right times. And if you want the resources that Nicodemus wanted, man, I, I run out of resources for grace and truth. He says, read the book of John. And you're going to discover a model, an example, and a resource to something you need and I need as well. I'd say one of the people who modeled this the most to me was my mom. My mom was still as a master at this. I mean, she knew the best time to talk to my brother, who wasn't really open ever. But boy, if you could catch him from 11 p.m. on, you could get access to his heart. My mom would always stay up at 11. It didn't always happen, but she knew that was the window to hear his heart. That was the window to speak into his life. My mom was so good at listening for a long time. Three-fourths of the conversation she listened, really understood what mattered, what's going on, why you chose to do this, before she said something like, can I suggest something to you? Can I tell you something I'm worried about? And you so knew my mom cared about you, you so felt the love, the truth of her love, that you began to love the truth she was sharing to you. 
she just knew how to create the right environment. Even with my kids today, she has this ability to draw out my daughter, draw out my son. And, and the master, she has this ability that I, that I saw Jesus have of balancing grace and truth. Even when I was first married, they said, uh, hey, we want to create an environment where we want to cruise together. And we just think that would be great for us. So my brother went and his wife went and we went. And she worked the schedule nine months in advance. You can imagine how complicated that was. And we all went on a cruise together. And it created an environment to enjoy each other, to interact, to have conversations. And, and even two weeks ago, uh, she called me a year ago and said, do you want to go on a houseboat together? I know Quinn. It's going to be hard to go on vacation with him. It's hard for us to spend as much time together. What if we got a houseboat because he loves to swim? And what if we spend a little extra and got the one with a hot tub? Because I know he loves in the hot tub. So we could play games and interact together. And we just had a great time for a week at Lake Cumberland. Where my mom created an environment. And then I said, well, you know what? My daughter's getting pretty serious about her boyfriend. Do you mind if I invite him? And so we invited him. So he drove down from Missouri because I want to create an environment because if they're going to continue to have a serious relationship, I want to get to know him. And I want to I close the gap because sometime I'm going to have to get to the bottom of something. Not there yet. So I want to build relationship now because I'm trying to practice what Jesus did and I'm trying to practice what my parents did. There's no easy solution. But I want to propose to you this principle is true wherever you are. People need to feel the truth of our love before they love the truth we're sharing. So I'd like you to pick one of these this week. One of these this next season, this next semester maybe, in your leadership or in your parenting, that you say, God, I need access to your resource. I want to grow in this area. So which are they? Number one, maybe for you, this is a foreign concept that you want to close the gap before you get to the bottom. Or maybe you're good at closing the gap but you never get to the bottom of the problem. And maybe this is the issue in your marriage. One of you is good at closing the gap, the other is getting to the bottom. You need to get on the same page. Maybe that's the area you want to say, I want to grow in that area. Maybe the second area is this idea of, instead of giving somebody what they deserve, you want to surprise people occasionally. Maybe surprise them often. that You give your best when they expect and deserve the worst. And that creates the context for trust, the context for... for ah, I want to serve better. I want to do better in the situation. Three, maybe you want to really examine your anger and ask yourself, am I using bring back anger or payback anger to call people to account? Maybe you need to go apologize like I did to my son for using some payback anger. You still need to call people to account, but the motivation of your love is to bring people back because you want the best for them. Fourth, when you approach situations that involve truth, do you think like a dictator or think like a teacher? Because a teacher draws people along and has a different spirit about it. Like that story I told about the, the, um, the pilot who had the two different instructors. And lastly, get really good at trying to be very strategically intentional about creating the right environment for the right conversations and the right message. And maybe we can be people that balance grace and truth just like Jesus did and John discovered. It's pretty amazing. John was a friend with Jesus, and John had a real anger problem. He had a nickname of Sons of Thunder because he lost his temper so often. He wrote this book saying, guys, you got problems? I got problems. And I tell you, following this guy helped change my life for the good. Can we thank, by the way, this is Christian Theskin. Can we thank him for all of his uh, artistry for us this morning? Thank you. Appreciate it. We're going to continue our series back to the drawing board next week as we summarize a book called the book of Romans and look at how to live guilt-free today. Thanks for being here. We'll see you all next week.